All right, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 31 to 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Friends, if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Kenson Lamb, and I serve as the pastor of our Bridgeport location. You know, as Rafe has said so well, we believe that God is Lord over all and that he is in all. And as we just sung, we are in Christ alone. And because of that, we can love each other during this time, love our neighbors, love our city, love those who are most vulnerable. Let's keep praying that God will bring about a resolution. Pray for those who are sick, our doctors, our students in schools, those who are out of work. There is so much that is happening that we cannot pray enough and we cannot care enough. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our verses and we'll go right into it. So Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Martin Luther, before becoming the great Protestant reformer, was studying to be a monk. And during his training, he struggled with incredible despair and guilt before God because of his sin. So Martin Luther took advantage of all the sacraments the Catholic Church had to offer so he can keep himself right with God. He fasted so often and for so long that his fellow monks thought that he was going to die from starvation. Martin Luther would sleep on the cold stone floor as a way to deny his fleshly pleasures. And many times he would confess his sins to the priest. And one time it went as long as six hours. Martin Luther's priest got so exhausted that he said to him, Luther, the next time you come, let it be for some serious sin and not these little sins. But Luther knew better than his priest. If there was one sin in his life, even a small smudge of it, he could not get into heaven. So Martin Luther confessed and confessed and confessed because he was so scared to be separated from God. A few years later, this began to all change. He was lecturing in a university, teaching on the book of Psalms, and he came across Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther thought to himself, why did Jesus quote these words on the cross? And that's when his eyes began to open. Jesus suffered separation from God for me. 
It was never the sacraments, it was never the fasting, it was never the confession that secured him or made him righteous. It was Jesus alone, grace alone, and faith alone. You know, today we wrap up Romans chapter 8, considered by many the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, because in it we have all the good news of the assurance of our salvation. That if you look at our chapter here, it starts in verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now look at how it ends in chapter 8, verse 39. What can separate us from the love of God? It starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Romans chapter 8 is a gift from God so that we don't have to be like Martin Luther and be tortured with doubt and fear when it comes to our relationship to God. That if you've trusted in Christ, you will never, ever be lost. That he will never separate from you. He's never going to give up on you. He's never going to let you down. He's never going to run around and desert you. Now, where we land today in our verses, and this was mentioned last week by Noah, is that Paul begins to introduce a problem. He introduces circumstances that can make us doubt this good news. He talks about opposition, tribulation, suffering, persecution, the sword. And for first century believers, these were realities, not maybes, that could stir a lot of fear and doubt. For example, have you ever found yourself in a circumstance that made you question the love of God. An illness, a death, a loss, a hardship, and you question God. God, you say you love me, but I ain't feeling it. And you can be tempted to conclude that God is against you, that he doesn't care about you, or even to believe that he doesn't exist. If any of you have ever struggled in this way, you're in great company. Job suffered and doubted. At his lowest point, he said to God, Job chapter 13, verse 24, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job thought that God was his enemy. Jeremiah was a prophet that declared the coming captivity of Jerusalem. But when the Babylonians began to raid the entire temple, burn down the city, it says in Lamentations 2, 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. Jeremiah thought God was an enemy. David, in the midst of his despair, said this, Psalm 13:1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David thought that God didn't care for him. Hardships and suffering can make us doubt God's love. Paul today gives us Romans chapter 8 to strengthen our faith and our assurance. And he does this, look at our verses, by asking rhetorical question after rhetorical question. Who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Who shall separate us? Paul is shouting in defiance to all creation, no one can keep me from my God. It's the modern day equivalent of saying, what you got? Bring it on. What do, what do you have? And we have to understand that Paul is not saying this from some ivory tower in some seminary. He has experienced firsthand this list in verse 35, except for the sword, which means death, which he will experience later on. But how could Paul be so bold? How can we be this bold? And what we'll see in our verses is that when we have the love of God, we will be more than conquerors.
So for our sermon here today, I'm going to give you four points. Okay, yes, four points. Don't blame me. Blame Paul. It's, it's his fault. Here are the four points. Why should I not doubt God's love for me? First, Christ is our victor. Second, Christ is our provision. Third, Christ is our intercessor. And then finally, Christ is our conqueror. So the first truth, Christ is our victor. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? One of the doubts and fears we can have is to believe that no one has our back that we have to fight alone. And Paul doesn't say, if someone is against you, he says, who can be against you? This is not a maybe, this is a reality that there are many things against us. And for some of you, you already know that already. Taxes are against me, winter's against me, traffic is against me, Chicago is against me. All of us can come up with a really long list. And Paul gives you his list again in verse 35. Show tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger our sword. This is a pretty gnarly list. But if that wasn't enough, scripture tells us that the devil himself is seeking to ruin us. First Peter chapter five, verse eight, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if that wasn't enough, there's also a threat inside of us, our sinful hearts, always enticing us to sin all the time. Augustine once said this, Lord, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man, myself. And if that all wasn't bad enough, something even more terrifying to consider is this. Is God against me? Is God against me? This was the opening chapter of Romans, that because of our sin, we are objects of God's wrath and deserving of eternal punishment. Let me ask you, who's got your back when it is God who is against you? No one. You are doomed. But this is the good news. God is not against us. He is for us that when we place our faith in Christ, we now belong to him, that Jesus went on the cross to pay the penalty and punishment for our sin, to meet all the righteous demands of God, so that now when God sees us, he is not against us, but for us, because we have the very Son of God fighting on our behalf. Now, this doesn't mean that life won't be hard or that there won't be any suffering, but what this does mean is that it doesn't have to be the final word. Your flesh, Satan, your sinful heart, a broken world can never claim final victory because Christ is the victor. In Romans 8:28 from last week, we read that even in our suffering, God is working it out for our good, that God is using it to produce Christ-like character, that when we're in suffering, we come out the other end with stronger faith, a seasoned character, greater compassion, deeper joy. In addition, in our previous verses, again, in verses 29 and 30, we're told that God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and will glorify us. Do you see? God is for us. People and circumstances and demons might try to oppose us, but they will never, ever overcome us because no one can overcome Jesus Christ. You know, many years ago, 
Henry Blackaby, a pastor in Canada, he was planting churches all over North America and many of them in very little towns. And in one of these small towns, a witch doctor came out to meet Henry and a witch doctor told him, no church is gonna be built in this town and I have come to put a curse on you. Henry Blackaby just smiled and said to the witch doctor, you have no idea who you're up against. And can I tell you, the church is still standing today, today. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one, because Christ is our victor. Here's the second truth. Why should we not doubt God's love? Christ is our provision. Verse 32, it says this, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, another reason we can doubt God is because we can believe that we're lacking, that we look at our bank account, we look at our singleness, we look at our infertility, we look at the lack of friendships, we see the stock marketing plummeting, people are losing their jobs over the virus, and we wonder, God, will you ever provide? The answer that Paul is saying is yes, God will provide. Paul gives an argument here from the greater to lesser, that if God gave his one and only son, how will he not also give us all things? It's kind of like when I proposed to my wife, then girlfriend, I gave her a diamond ring and I cleared out my bank account. I had nothing left and I was literally eating ramen for months to save up. Now imagine that I give her this ring and then she asked for the box that came with the ring. And I said to her, girl, you're just so greedy. You know, you're asking for way too much. No, I already gave her the ring. The box would be nothing. It would be so easy to give. That's the argument right now. If God gave you his son, there is no reason to doubt that he will not give you anything else. Now, I want to be careful here. Oftentimes, we can confuse what we most need with what we most want. They are often not the same thing. Because sometimes what we think we need is money, is health, it's companionship. And don't get me wrong, these are important things, but this is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be saved from death, sin, and Satan. That we need to be saved from eternal damnation. To receive anything in this earthly life without having our eternity settled would make anything that we get in this life meaningless. It's through Jesus Christ, our greatest need has been met. God has provided a savior. The language Paul uses here, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that language that he's using is meant to point us back to the sacrifice Abraham makes by offering his son, Isaac. That right before Abraham is about to stab his son, God cries out, stop, stop. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son. And instead of Isaac dying, God provides a ram to die in his place. That moment is meant to point us to the cross. But unlike Abraham, God did not spare his son. His son was murdered, his blood was spilled, do you recognize just how much God loves you? Do you need proof? Look 
to the cross. Look to the wounds on Christ's hands. But here's the thing. Even though I say this, many of us are not embracing this. That instead of looking to God's provision on the cross, you look at your unanswered prayers. You look at all those lost opportunities. You look at your hardships and you say, God, do you really care? God is not for me. Can I just say that the reason you're struggling like this is because you are suffering with spiritual amnesia. That you forget who your God is and what he has done for you. In verse 32, Paul is showing us that if you want to grow in your trust in God, if you want to grow in your love for God, look back. Look at, all, look at all the overwhelming evidence of God's love and provision that he has poured into your life. Use your God-given common sense. Why would God put this kind of investment into you by giving you his son, not to give you what you need to accomplish his will? Why would he rescue you from sin and not give you help in your marriage? Why would he give you the Holy Spirit and not give you wisdom to parent? Some of us are so freaked out about the future, we're terrified to make the wrong decision. God did not redeem you to abandon you. He is more invested in your life than you are right now. If God allowed his son to be sacrificed for you, you have no reason to doubt his provision for you. Here's the third reason why we don't need to doubt God's love. Christ is our intercessor. Look at verse 33 and 34 here. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, we have two questions here in these two verses, but they're all addressing the same thing about why we doubt God, and that's because of our guilt. You know, verse 33 who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is a picture of a courtroom, and we're standing on trial. And just imagine that witnesses are being called forward to testify everything bad that you have ever done, that every single person that you've interacted with for the entirety of your life will be asked this one question, tell me all the bad things that they've done. That is terrifying. I just imagine the person I cut off on the road and all the things that they're going to say about me. There would be no courtroom in the world that can hold all the people with all the evidence to show how bad I am. Psalm 130 verse 3 says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? That is a rhetorical question. None of us can stand before our guilt. And one day we will all stand before our, God, before our God and he will judge us and nothing will be hidden from him. All the mess, all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin will be before him. And God will look at us. He will slam the gavel and say to us, innocent. Whoa, whoa what? Innocent? How? Verse 33 again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The reason God declares you innocent is because the very one who judges you will be the very one who saves you because his son pays the penalty 
Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We are free from our guilt because Christ first died. He took all of our penalty and punishment to the cross. He took the guilty verdict to the grave. But Christ didn't just die. He rose in new life to give us new life and new power through the Holy Spirit. And because our Redeemer lives, he now sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Jesus is personally pleading on our behalf. He defends us and upholds our salvation before God. That 24 hours a day, God looks at sinful people and says, you need perfect righteousness to be my child. And 24 hours a day for all eternity, Jesus supplies what God demands, the righteousness of Christ for all who believe. Now, this doesn't mean that in the Christian life, we won't face accusations or that it won't hurt. That phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that is a lie. Words hurt, and they hurt more than anything else. We will face hurtful accusations, and especially as Christ followers, if we're living out our faith with boldness, you will face more accusations than most. You'll be called a hypocrite, a hater, ignorant, small-minded. You will face accusations even from your own conscience. Your past will come up and will make you cringe and hide. You will face accusations from the devil himself. The name Satan in Hebrew literally means accuser. In the book of Revelation, it says that Satan is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Christian, you will face accusation everywhere you go and when you live for Christ. And in those moments, when you hear how unlovable you are, when you hear how unwanted you are, when you hear how unworthy you are, when all this sin is being brought up in your life, what are you to do in those moments? You agree with it. You agree with it and say, you're right. I did screw up. I did sin. I am a huge mess. But Jesus still loves me. And he died for me and lives for me. I deserve every bad thing, every condemnation, every judgment. But Jesus has already been judged in my place. I don't fear Satan. I don't fear this world. I don't fear my own conscience because it is Jesus Christ who defends me. Amen. You can say amen at home. Amen. For anyone to bring a charge against you is like trying to bring a sinful charge against Jesus Christ. It's not going to stick. Who can discredit the verdict of God over us? No one. It is God who justifies and Christ who intercedes on our behalf. Finally, we don't have to doubt the love of God because Christ is our conqueror. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The fourth temptation to doubt God's love is because of suffering. 
Paul here gives us absolutely some of the worst things that can happen to us. And for many of us, this has become a growing concern in the West because we're starting to see rising levels of anger and intolerance and hateful rhetoric towards Christians. And we wonder what will happen once it becomes illegal to hold and practice biblical views. You know, what are we going to do when they threaten to throw us in prison or even to take our lives? Church, let me remind you that this is already happening all around the world. Many are dying and being imprisoned for their faith right now. But even in all these things, Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. How could Paul have such courage? Look at verse 37 again. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice, it doesn't say we are more than conquerors because we loved him. We are more than conquerors because he loved us. Our security and assurance is rooted in his love. And thank God for that, because when I suffer, I'm weak sauce. I'm doubting God all the time. And if my relationship to God was dependent on my faithfulness to him in my suffering, I would be doomed. But this is the good news. It's not dependent on me. It's dependent on Christ alone. And his love for me is not fickle, because in his sufferings, he was faithful to the very end. And consider this, if the horrors and anguish of the cross could not make Jesus turn his back on you 2,000 years ago, there is nothing that can happen today that could keep him from loving you right now. And it's for this very reason Paul says that we are more than conquerors. You know, conqueror in the Greek here is where we get the word Nike from, right? The shoe brand, Nike. But in the Greek, it doesn't just say conqueror. It literally says we hyper-conquered. We didn't just survive these trials and hardships. We dominated. To conquer is to rejoice after the battle is over. And that's nice. But to hyper-conquer is to rejoice while you are in the battle because you know that you've already won. You know, years ago, I visited a church that had a section for those who were hard of hearing or completely deaf. And as I was watching this congregation during the worship service, the musicians began to play the song, How Great Is Our God. And what I noticed next brought me to tears. That as I looked down at this section over here, I could see everyone raising their hands to the sky and praising their God. And I just thought to myself, how? How could a Christian sing with so much difficulty? How, how could they sing when they could not hear a single melody or tune? How could they believe that God was great with, with, with all this hardship and suffering? It's because they were more than conquerors. Park Community Church, many of you are more than conquerors. You are suffering through cancer, through a divorce, a loss of a child, illness, hardships, discrimination, poverty, and even in all that hurt, you are praising your God. Why? 
It's because your hope is not rooted in this world, is not rooted in health, is not rooted in comfort, but in the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in verse 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in these two verses tries to give us everything and anything that he could think of that might separate us from the love of God. And just to make sure that he doesn't miss anything, he also says anything else in all creation. Paul right now is looking at the entire universe and he can't find a single thing that can separate us from the love of God. That even if he had all the armies of hell were to come upon one person, if that person is in Christ, it could not stop the love of God. That is how secure you are. Now, because of time, I can't work through this entire list, but there is one that I do want to highlight in verse 38. Can anything present separate us from the love of God. You know, with this pandemic of the coronavirus, with fear being at peak levels, with shelves at stores empty of basic necessities, it sure seems that some do believe this. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying that we should become foolish. We should stop washing our hands. We are to love our neighbor and we are to take precautions that as a church, as Christ followers, we should always be the first ones to joyfully make sacrifices for the common good. But this is what I want to get after for us. Do you fear like the world fears? Are your thoughts consumed with how this impacts you? Are you speaking like the end is near? Are you watching every Facebook feed on the virus? Or instead, are you being prayerful? Are you looking to help others by extending generosity? Are you seeking to share your faith and to show a fearful world the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you are more than a conqueror? If so, what is there to be afraid of? If so, what is there to dread? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? No one. God is the one who has bounded himself to you in his love, and nothing can break that bond. Now, what's some application for us? First, for the believer, verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul here quotes Psalm 44. It's a psalm of lament during Israel's darkest moments. And it shows us here that suffering as God's people is nothing new. It happened back then and it's happening today. But I want to show you something. Notice the reason for this suffering in verse 36. It says, for your sake, we are being killed. That there is suffering because People are choosing to follow God. When we know the love of God, we will be able to follow him into hard places because you trust him. You are confident in his love for you. And for some of you, what this means is that you need to step into costly and challenging places. 
You need to foster or adopt. You need to care for the most vulnerable. You need to go on that global trip or take perspectives and grow in your theology and love for the nations. You share your faith with others. You, you serve in our kids' ministry when we have church again and hopefully in a couple of weeks. Now, this doesn't mean that serving our kids is like being killed, okay? I'm not saying that whatsoever, but I'm asking you to join a ministry to help raise up the next generation of Christ followers. To know that you are loved by God means to live courageously and sacrificially. Here's the second application, and this is for the unbeliever. Almost everyone in the world claims, verse 31, God is for us. Have you ever noticed no one ever says, God is against me, God hates me. No politician is going to go through this election cycle and say, I'm one of God's enemies. Everyone believes God is on their side. But when Paul says God is for us, the us here is very specific. It's not for those who like God. It's not for those who think that religion is helpful. It's not for people who think that they're good people and thus deserving of God's love. It's not a specific political party. The us here are for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. They have confessed him as Lord and Savior, that this is a person who has been forgiven by God and brought into the family of God. This is who God is for. Is that you. Do you know God in a personal, loving way? Is Jesus the center of your heart? If not, come to him today. Talk with the friends that you're sitting with right now and ask them to share the good news of Jesus with you. You know, let me close with this. During the time of the Reformation, many were killed for their faith. For example, in Oxford, England, Christians were being burned right in the middle of the street for challenging the church and its doctrine. And this was during the reign of Bloody Mary. On one occasion, two men were killed. It was Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of London, and Vladimir, a preacher of the gospel. And they burned together. And as they were dying, Vladimir said to Ridley, Today we shall light a fire in England that shall never go out. Awesome. Now, as this was happening, there was a man watching this by the name of Thomas Cramner. He had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. But Thomas, unlike these two men, recanted his faith because he was scared to die. Now, before we get too judgmental here, you and I have no idea what it means to have someone point a gun to your head to tell you to deny your faith, that we don't know what it means to potentially have our family and our kids suffer and maybe die because of holding our faith to Christ. Thomas Cramner denied his faith, but after seeing his two brothers burn, he denied his denial. So they put him on the stake and lit him on fire. And when the fire was starting to come up to his body, he put his right hand into the fire first and said, let the hand that had recanted burn first. Let me ask you, is this someone loved by God? Is this more than a conqueror? To the watching and unbelieving world, no. From the standpoint of earth, he lost everything. But from the standpoint of eternity, he was more than a conqueror because he knew that nothing could separate him from the love 
of God. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, we thank you so much that even in this really unique season for us as a culture, as a country, as a world, where many are living in fear and doubt and anxiety, because of Jesus Christ, we have a hope that can't be touched. We have a security that can never be lost because it is your son who has overcome that he was the one who conquered sin, Satan, death, cross, and everything else in between all of that. Father, we thank you that as Christ followers, we get to live in that assurance. We get to live in that security. Father, forgive us for all those times that we doubted your son's love. We've doubted your love, that we've gone back to our idols. We've gone back to crushing anxiety and worry. Father, would you bring the gospel to bear in our hearts? Help us to be reminded of the lavish love that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, especially during this unique season, help us as a church, help us as Christ followers in all the different homes that we're meeting at right now to shine all the more brightly of what it means to walk as more than conquerors. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You know, church family, as you guys wrap up here, let me go ahead and give you a blessing as you head into a doubting and fearful world. Go now and know that your God can do more than you can ever ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church, in the city, in the world, and in Christ Jesus for all generations. And all God's people said, amen. You are loved.